Good morning. It's still morning. A few more minutes. Welcome to Worship at Third. My name is Richard Haney, and I'm a part-time, part-time parish associate here and work with the mission committee and preach occasionally. Uh, and most of the time I work for a mission organization, Frontier Fellowship, and uh, my colleague Donald Marsden and I and some others try to help the Western Church connect with what God is doing on the mission frontier. So lots of parts of the world where Jesus is not yet known and we're trying to be part of that work of God to make him known and to involve us uh, in the enterprise. So when I preach out there, I'm always preaching a mission sermon, but when I preach here, I get a text assigned. <laughs> and that's actually good because otherwise I would just preach mission texts and forget that it's a big Bible with lots of other passages. So we're in the middle of uh, the Ten Commandments, preaching from the Old Testament. So after today, eight down, two to go, in case you're counting. Next week, don't bear false witness, and the final week, don't covet. Today, we're not stealing. So leave everything in the pews when you leave today. <laughs> You'll feel better, I'll feel better. Um, Let's suppose this afternoon you went out to Short Pump Town Center and you had a little clipboard and you decided to ask two questions, two survey questions. And the first one is, what is your picture of God from the Old Testament? Just ask anybody, random. And then the second question is, what is your picture of God as he is portrayed in the New Testament? And what do you think you get? Do you think you would get, oh, God in the Old Testament is holy and righteous and high and lifted up and transcendent and gives the law? Maybe. And might you get in the New Testament, oh, God, he's the good shepherd, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God is holy in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God is gracious in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there is a sense, I'm guessing, if you do this, let me know, if you do this today, that people associate the God of the Old Testament with, you know, the Ten Commandments and smoke on the mountain, and, you know, the tablets broken, and that the grace of God is more prominent in the New Testament. Well, think about that. I wonder if that's true. We are New Testament Christians, and we know that we're not justified by keeping the law, so here's my question, is the law nonetheless helpful? Or do we need the law? If we're not justified by keeping the law, if we can't keep the law, if none is righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what good is the law? Let me give you two, two reasons. The first, the law is like a fence. And like a fence, the law tries to keep us on the right side of the fence. If it's dangerous in the pasture next door because there's a bull, it's safer to be on the right side of the fence. Or, is anybody watching World Cup soccer? Can you imagine World Cup soccer if there were no lines on the field? If there were no boundaries? If there was no goal? It'd be hard to play soccer, wouldn't it? Sorry, football. It'd be hard to play football if you didn't have boundaries. The law is a boundary device. And secondly, the law is like a mirror, which we look in the mirror and we see who we are, what we look like. 
I had this New Testament professor in seminary, Gordon Fee, that used to tell this story about his boys when they were little. They'd go out and play, and they'd just get filthy, playing in the creek and in the sandbox, and they'd come back for dinner, and he'd say, go wash, and they would go wash, and then they would present themselves to him, and he'd say it was like this big, clean circle in the middle of their face. And he would say, go back into the washroom and look in the mirror and then wash again and get all of it. The mirror or the law shows us where we're clean and where we're unclean, where we fall short. So the law is a good thing. It doesn't have power to save us or transform us, but it shows us the right direction. The Hebrew word Torah, law, we think is derived from the Hebrew word yara, which is a verb that means to throw a javelin or to shoot an arrow at a target. Therefore, keeping the law in that picture would be hitting the target. And there's a New Testament word for sin, hamartia, that means missing the mark. So the law shows us how to be on the straight and narrow, how to be aiming for the right place, and how we fall short or how we stray from the path. The Ten Commandments, of course, are part of this law, the centerpiece of the law. In the first half of the Ten Commandments, by the way, have you, have you memorized them? I mean, you've been studying them for weeks, right? Number one, no other gods. Number two, oh, who preached number two? <laughs> No graven images or idols. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Number five, honor your... Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, you don't need to know that one. That's today's. (laughs) Number eight, do not steal. So the second half of the commandments don't murder, don't steal, have to do with our relationship with our neighbor, right? The first half of the commandments, love the Lord your God. The second half, love your neighbor as yourself. So we're in the realm of neighbor love, and now we come to do not steal. And so how do you navigate a life with possessions and stuff and desires and wants and preferences and love your neighbor? It sounds a little more complicated when you put it that way, right? How do you navigate with all your stuff and all your desires and preferences and love your neighbor as yourself? So the commandment helps us. And uh, three things at the commandment, a simple outline. We want to look at the wideness of the commandment. What are all the implications? What are all the ways that we might steal or take from others? And then there's the darkness of the commandment. We've been studying the American idols behind the different commandments. So what's the darkness or the idol behind the commandment? Number three, what's the brightness of this commandment? How can the commandment show us the way, shine light on the path, help us to go in the right direction? So here's the first one. What's the wideness of the eighth commandment, do not steal? If your kids are hungry and you're poor, you might feel desperate to steal to feed your kids. That's different than embezzling funds at work because you want to buy a sports car, right? Be stealing, but it would have a little different feel. Most of us aren't desperate to feed our kids, but there are people in the world who steal out of 
I'm not going to say necessity. I'm going to say out of desperation because they can't think of another way to feed their kids. Stealing might be the same basic taking what it doesn't belong to you, but it looks different in different cultures. You know, Jesus intensifies most of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say if you look at someone angrily in your heart, Jesus says what we do springs from what's in our heart, what we think and what we feel, and he makes the commandments kind of, what would you say, tighter, more intense. I think Derek said he raises the bar. There's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount exactly about do not steal, but there's a verse, wherever your treasure is, there is your heart also. So another verse, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon's an ancient word for wealth. Cannot serve God and wealth. So Jesus does speak quite a bit about possessions and stuff and what our attitude and what our heart is about it. One of the questions, I have this long list of questions for God. I don't know if you've got these or not. Most of them have to do with the Bible. Um, Why did you put do not steal as the eighth commandment, and why did you put do not covet as the tenth commandment? Because I would have put them the other way around. Obviously, I'm missing something. (laughs) Uh, But there's some relationship, right? Coveting is desiring an insatiable or a craving desire for what belongs to somebody else. And stealing is taking something that belongs to somebody else. So there's a relationship between coveting and stealing. I was uh, in Ethiopia earlier, a couple weeks ago, and I was thinking about this sermon because I knew it was coming up. And so I'm thinking about do not steal just about every day. And I'm with the Surrey people in southwest Ethiopia, a rustic, tribal group, don't wear many clothes, but carry AK-47s, and cattle prods, and they're cattle herders, and to be wealthy in the Surrey world, you have many cows and many wives. So even though they've become Christian, they have not given up polygamy at this point. And so if you want to be prosperous, you might sell cows and buy another wife. Or maybe you go to the other village and steal a young woman to be your fourth wife. Now, I have never thought about do not steal in relationship to wives and cattle. That was new for me. But in that culture, that's what makes you prosperous, having many wives, having lots of cattle. And the Surrey get into trouble, stealing cows and taking women for their wives, and then the other tribe comes and practices retribution. It's interesting to think about this commandment in another culture. But what about our culture? You and I are more likely to steal out of desire, not out of need, and probably not uh, in the kind of direct way. What tempts you or what do you struggle with related to this commandment? Let me just give you some ideas. What, what constitutes stealing? Is What about stealing somebody else's creative content? We live in an age of digital downloads. I'm afraid that my CDs are going to become completely extinct and there will not be a CD player pretty soon because music is digital. If you take digital music, is that stealing or is that sharing? What about plagiarism? 
What about stealing intellectual content? What about onerous fees in money transactions? What about unjust taxes? What about extortion, bribery, paying low wages? Frontier Fellowship has a, a relationship with an NGO in Ethiopia, and we send them money for projects, and they distribute the money. They take 3% for an administrative fee. That seems fair to us. But they just wrote us a letter and said, we're going to change that to 20%. Whoa. That feels onerous to me. In the world of finance, what's just and what's unjust? What about capitalism? There's a new book by Ken Barnes called Redeeming Capitalism. Buddy Childress is going to have Ken in town sometime. That would be an interesting talk to hear, I think. Is there such a thing as relational theft or psychological extortion? What if in our relationships we don't give another person the opportunity to talk, to express herself, to win, to be heard? Is that a kind of theft? Is the Me Too movement a long overdue recognition of how some men have stolen dignity from some women? Can you steal somebody's pride? Can you steal someone's self-esteem, one's hope, one's joy? What are the ways that stealing crosses widely into other areas. Am I going too wide for you? The text ought to make us uncomfortable. It should challenge us. What's the idol behind the commandment? What's the darkness on thou shalt not steal? Is it, is it greed? Is it desire? Is it coveting? Here's a passage from 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, and here's a description of the content of the world, the desire of the flesh, remember flesh means sinful humanity, the desire of sinful humanity, the desire of the eyes, what we see and find attractive, and the pride and riches comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Is that the idol behind the commandment? The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride in riches? Emil Bruner is a German theologian. I put a little quote from him on the cover of the bulletin about wealth. He gave the Gifford Lectures, that's a series of lectures in Scotland every year, in 1948, and one of his talks was on wealth. Money is the abstract form of material goods. This abstraction, like all abstraction, includes both great potentialities and great dangers. We don't live in a barter economy anymore, right? You don't go to get your dry cleaning done and you take eggs and say, if I give you a dozen eggs, will you clean my clothes? You use your credit card. That makes it a lot easier. But it also means you could spend a lot with the credit card before you know what happens. Bruner says, I can't imagine an infinite number of things. Like, how many homes or cars or boats or iPhones or how many could you use? Even if it's more than one, it's a finite number, right? But how much money could you use? You could kind of imagine a lot, right? I mean, why stop with 100,000, go to a million? I mean, why stop with a million, go to a billion? I mean, how much is enough 
for our security, our comfort, our prosperity, our progeny, our grandkids. Money is an abstraction, so it's hard to keep the number under control. This is Bruner's point. He says, money leads us to materialism, valuing that over other values, and money affects our relationships, especially when someone has a lot and somebody else has a little. Donald and I could tell you stories about trying to fund mission projects in the non-Western world where most of the money comes from the Western world. And is that healthy, that the mission partners with all the money come from one part of the world? Does that give us a sense of power over our partners? How, how can we give but not control everything about the gift? How about you? When you give to your church, do you like to designate what you give? Is most of your giving in the Christian world designated giving, or do you give and say, here, use it, elders, to the best of your prayerful discernment? There's something about giving that needs to let the control go. For me, um, my wife isn't here at this service, so I can speak more freely. Uh, I admitted at the last service that, that my uh, weakness in accumulating things is books. So we just moved to a new house. I have 50 boxes of books in my garage. Uh, to my credit, I gave 40 boxes of books away in the move. But my wife asks these penetrating questions like, are you going to read them? Are you going to use them? Could someone else use them better than you? And I'm getting to an age where I'm starting to think about it. It's time to give stuff away, not to continue to accumulate. But all these books are my friends, and it's hard to give friends away. Um, how about you? Is there anything you struggle with accumulating and you need to work on giving away? That's number three. The brightness of the commandment is a strategy to follow it. And if taking and stealing is the dark side, then giving and sharing is the bright side. Do you have a strategy in your life to grow in generosity, to grow in sharing? Generosity ought to define us as Christians. Giving, stewardship, benevolence, generosity. Would people use those words to describe you or us? Two things have to happen before we learn generosity. First, we have to receive before we can give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gives to us first. And then membership or belonging is the second thing. Have you ever read Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, essayist, novelist, poet? He has this great line, health is membership. And then he has another line that he takes from Flannery O'Connor, somewhere is better than anywhere. Wendell Berry says, you have to be located somewhere where people know your name, where you're in community, where you're in relationship. And that's where you learn to share. And that's where you learn to be generous. And that's where you learn to give. And that's where it's harder to steal when you know people's names. The Surrey, when they steal wives, they go to the next village, not their own village. When we were getting our old house ready to sell, right after it was all fixed up, somebody came in and vandalized it. It was rather jarring. 
And we don't know if it was a disgruntled worker who had been fired by the contractor or if it's one of my neighbors. And at first, I was kind of paralyzed by the fear that it was one of my neighbors. And so I've chosen to believe that it isn't. (laughs) But do you see how that affects you? If somebody who knows you would steal from you, it has a whole different feel than if a random stranger out there came by and helped himself. Health is membership. When we belong to one another, we learn to share and to be generous. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, had a piece uh, this week about Justice Kennedy. He quoted Kennedy, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, which sounds good at first. But Brooks said, the problem is there's no sense or mention that in individuals are embedded in a social order. Do we just on our own define what meaning is, what mystery is, or are we formed by our schools, our churches, our communities, our cultures to know what is the meaning of existence? Most of us require communal patterns and shared norms and enforced moral guardrails Ten Commandments, to help us to restrain our desires and keep us free. Almost sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? We need to be in a community where people hold us accountable, where we share rules and norms and guidelines to really live a life that's full. That's why parish groups and small groups and Bible study groups, places where we come together, help form that community and then help form us so that we can be people of law and people of grace. I reread a little book in the Bible this week. Uh, Do you know the little story of Philemon in the New Testament? It's like, it's 25 verses. You you could read it today. Halftime at the World Cup match, read Philemon. Paul writes a letter to Philemon who was a slave owner who owned a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away and bumped into the apostle Paul. Paul led him to faith in Jesus. So now Paul has his new friend who's a runaway slave, and he's trying to decide what's the right thing. He doesn't want to steal Onesimus from Philemon, so he says to Onesimus, you have to go back. But then he writes to Philemon and says to Philemon, this man is a Christian. And by the way, you're a Christian because of my ministry too. You owe your whole life to me. And I'd like to ask you to free Onesimus. His word means useful because Onesimus is useful to me. It's a deliberate pun. And it would be good if when I send him back, you give him back. Isn't that beautiful? It's just a beautiful letter about grace and giving and generosity and reconciliation and relationships. That's our challenge, isn't it? We live in an age of affluence, in an age of stuff, and whether we are tempted to steal or we're tempted to accumulate or we're attempted, tempted to hold it close, God says, let it go. Let your heart be generous. Learn to share. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us where we are? And uh, most of us aren't, aren't stealing stuff in the traditional sense of the word, but are we, are we somehow complicit in systems that take advantage of others? Lord, just point that out to us. And could we be more generous? Could we be proactively generous? Are we teaching our kids and our grandkids to be generous? Lord, help us to examine our hearts. And as we examine our hearts and as we may feel stricken or guilty, remind us that there is grace for all of us who miss the mark. Grace to restore us, grace to nourish us, grace to bring us back close to your heart. And so we pray for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.